Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You this morning that You have given us Your Word, that in it we find truth, that in it we find life. We ask that as Your Word is declared this morning, that Your Spirit, He would be here, and that He would impart life, knowledge, repentance, encouragement, whatever Your people here need to hear from You this morning, Lord, may You grant it through the declaring of Your Word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm guessing you noticed uh, this morning, but uh, Phil's not with us this morning. He is out of town, I'm told, at his 50th high school reunion. That's what Jim told me. So if it's not accurate, it's Jim's fault, uh, not mine. But I'm very grateful that the Heisler family was able to fill in and lead worship this morning. Also, I'm, I'm coming to terms with people have put extra things of carpet here because I wasn't tall enough. To, to stand on more things, and now my pulpit's even further away from me. I, mean, I always am jealous when a short man steps behind the pulpit because his face is like right here, and it's, it's easy. I mean, my preaching prof said, he's like, I see the top of your head too much, and I was like, I, I can't help it. Build a taller pulpit. It'd be great one day. Anyways, we're in the second week of our message series here on a Christian view of government, and last week we saw... Uh, that God is God and the state isn't, and that our rights come from God. We were in primarily Genesis 1 and then also Exodus 20 with the, the Ten Commandments. But our rights come to us from God and not from men, and that's what makes our rights unalienable. And it was that idea, the Christian idea of rights, uh, that really transformed the world. And in other words, if you go back to Rome, you don't find that idea of rights. It's not there. The Roman citizens had rights, but no one else did. There wasn't this idea of God-given rights. And the question can arise, uh, why do a topic uh, of sermons on this topic right now at this time? And the answer to that question uh, can be summarized by a a conversation the late and famous theologian R.C. Sproul had with another late famous theologian, uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, back in the 1980s. Sproul said he got into a car with Schaefer, and he asked Schaefer this question, what's the biggest threat facing the church right now? And he said that Schaefer responded without hesitation, statism. That's the biggest threat, Schaefer said. He's like, as I'm watching everything that's going on here and the developments that are happening in culture and the state, the biggest threat is statism, that is worship of the state, looking to the state to replace God. And I have to say that Schaefer, um, 40 years ago, was 100% correct. What we've seen over the last couple of years is that uh, Christians have not thought deeply or carefully about what the Bible teaches about government. And when we don't think about these things deeply or carefully, we end up just going with the flow. We flow downstream with culture. And uh, I feel that uh, the churches have failed and the leaders have failed because they have this false sense of righteousness or holiness to never talk about politics in government. And I hope you'll see by the end of uh, this series that the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic. And more importantly, well maybe not more importantly, but also important is that if the wolves are coming for the sheep from this realm of life, which they are, then it is the job of the shepherds to beat off the wolves. I don't get to pick which wolves are coming, but it is my job to take care of those wolves and to equip the sheep. Now, Joseph Boot is a Canadian theologian 
And he captured this reality well uh, in a recent book. He wrote this. He says, It's a surreal experience for a Christian thinker to witness the situation for civil, civil liberties deteriorating month after month with most people crossing the road to the other side pretending they see nothing as tyrants and robbers in suits, skirts, and ties oppress the innocent and gangs of masked officers mindlessly say follow orders. Australia, New Zealand, and Canada have all set terrifying precedents of authoritarianism these past two years. And the one institution capable of stopping it all, the historic defender of freedom in the West, the church, has singularly failed, in most cases, to even try. Joseph Boot knows this firsthand. He was in a church service during the pandemic, and it got raided by a Canadian SWAT team. The ignorance of the church on these issues is largely alarming, and the Christian leaders must do a better job equipping their sheep, and that is why we are doing what we are doing here. As a pastor, I've witnessed more times than I care to admit fellow pastors complaining about their congregants and complaining about other Christians and saying that they are acting so unchristian in the realm of politics. And my rebut to them is constant. Well, if you refuse to shepherd them in that area of life, it's your fault, not theirs. If you think your job as a pastor means you can't talk about this, then don't be surprised when they're being shepherded by talking heads on MSNBC and Fox News. Because you won't shepherd them. And they need shepherding. Of course, some pastors have sought to teach on this subject, and they've done an absolutely terrible job. And so then I'm like, well, maybe you guys shouldn't be talking about this. Why uh, are so many pastors, are faithful pastors, are hesitant to do it because it's often done really poorly? And I'll own that. I've seen politicians from both major political parties here in the States standing behind pulpits offering campaign speeches on Sunday mornings. And it's appalling. That's not what the pulpit's for. It's not for politicians to stump for votes. I've also seen another problem, that when some pastors do talk about politics from the pulpit or government, it's clear that they say nothing of substance, so they've just wasted everyone's time, or that they have an unmitigating cowardice to address what is actually clearly going on in front of their face. That's not what we're asking for here. So I'm going to try to walk the balance between those two. I'm striving to not stump for particular candidates, but rather this series is about the principles that God has laid out for Christians and how they should think about government. And then you should take those principles and live according to them in your political involvement. Right? All of Christ for all of life. And so today, we will examine the most direct passage on government in Scripture. The most detailed explanation of it. And that's Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 7. And while this passage has been at the center of the storm for the last two to three years in Christianity, it remains a bedrock text for rightly understanding government. In it, we see the role of government as God's servant. That government is meant for your good. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. The first point from this text is the need for us to submit to governing authorities. Look at verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
Paul starts with this command to the Roman Christians. Submit to the governing authorities, for their authority comes from God. There's a lot we can say about this, and we will say about it, but we have to start with this. You are commanded by God to be submissive to the governing authorities. Just as I talked about with authority in the home three or four weeks ago, I am not going to explain that command away. The text has authority. Our inclinations do not have authority. I am not embarrassed that the Bible commands us to be in submission to governing authorities. God has said it, and it is true. Now, of course, just like in the home, there are limits to this authority, and then there are therefore limits to our submission to that authority. But the standard in the disposition of Christians towards governing authorities is one of submission. There are many reasons for this, but I think the primary one is this. Anarchy is objectively bad. Anarchy is objectively bad for society. Government has a God-given purpose and a role that without it, society would be ripped apart. Also, we can say on the other side of the spectrum, tyranny is also objectively bad, and Christians should be objectively against tyranny. But government is instituted by God for a good purpose. And generally speaking, we are better off with a bad government instead of no government at all. That's the position of Scripture. To put it another way, all hierarchies are not bad. And we cannot play fast and loose with the text just because it grates against our American culture a little bit. The text says it. It is there for our good. We must note, though, the context that this is written into. Rome was largely an evil government. It was. And surely the Roman Christians felt some hesitation in obeying the government, especially with how things had changed with the coming of Christ. And yet Paul here instructs a general obedience even to wicked rulers like Caesar. Paul is also the one, as we note his life, he's also the one who practiced disobedience to governing authorities wherever he went. There's no tension here between that Paul and the Paul writing Romans 13. That's just a fancy way of saying submission is not ultimate to the government. Never can be. Submission is only ultimate to God and to God alone. And so I must remind you here, uh, last week we talked about God-given rights. Next week we're going to talk about uh, giving to God what is God's and Caesar's what is Caesar's. But this is meant, this series, as I said then, I'll say again, is meant to, to be viewed as a whole. Not individual messages judged alone. But as a whole, we're going to see what the Bible teaches about government. And as you go throughout Scripture, you will note that many of the stories of Scripture revolve around disobeying wicked rulers. In fact, most of the famous stories and characters of Scripture do just that. Paul knows this, and that is why he has to caution the Roman Christians to not go overboard with disobedience. Now for us, being submissive to a governing authority needs to be applied to our specific context. Caesar was the highest authority in Rome. In America, there is no Caesar. There is no emperor. Our government is designed to have different levels of authority and to parse out authority onto these many different levels to have checks and balances on that authority. But in America, the highest authority is not a person. It's a piece of paper. 
The highest authority in the American form of government is the Constitution. Every elected official swears to uphold and defend the Constitution. In fact, it's the Constitution that gives authority to elected officials. It delegates specific roles. All of us, this means, including our politicians, if we want to be in obedience to Romans 13, must submit to the Constitution. It's the highest law of the land. If a governor, a president, or a congress were to go against the Constitution, it is they who are violating Romans 13, not those who say you should be obeying the Constitution. In fact, you can take a famous example from the last two years uh, when John MacArthur disobeyed the governing authorities of California and said, I'm not closing down my church. He filed a lawsuit, and eventually the court came in and said that the governing officials were wrong and they didn't have the authority to do that because the Constitution says you can't do that. Checks and balances. That is how our government functions. The Roman government didn't really function that way. So in applying Romans 13 to today, you have to examine your own context. The next thing we see in this passage is that the state is God's servant for good. It is God's servant for good. Look again at verse 1 and then verse 4. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 4. For he, that is the state, is God's servant for your good. There are several things we have to take from these quotes. First, because the authority of the state comes from God, it is to be respected. And second, because it comes from God, it is limited. God gives the state authority to do a specific job. The state is to seek good, and it seeks good by punishing evil. But where it seeks evil, it runs aground or afoul of its God-given authority and its own purpose. In other words, God does not give the state the authority to do evil. Where it does, the state loses its authority from God. Second, the state is God's servant. That term, servant, is used twice in this passage. It's actually two different uh, Greek words. Some of your translations probably read minister of God instead of servant. And one of those uses in Romans 13 is the same Greek word that we get the church office deacon from. So we, I could literally say the, church, or the state is God's deacon. He's servant. We see echoes of these titles and the church's influence on our politics today. And many nations, because we have heads of state in many European nations who are called the prime minister. Why is he called a minister? Well, because of the Christian tradition in Romans 13. He's the minister of God. It shows that they are to serve God and the people's good. Here in America, we would generally, or at least used to refer to elected officials as public servants. That they were servants, not rulers. Paul is being very, very countercultural here. Because in no way did Caesar view himself as the servant of anyone. He did not see himself as a servant of God. Rather, Caesar claimed to be divine and that he should be worshipped. Paul was very excellent at writing in such a way as he is undermining uh, the culture of Rome again and again. Everyone was called to serve Caesar, but Paul says Caesar exists to serve God and the people. 
And that means, as God's servant, he has a specific job delegated to him. A servant only has the authority his master gives to him. And he is therefore accountable to his master for how he exercises the authority given unto him. Charles Hodge, a famous theologian, said this about Romans 13. All authority is of God. No man has any rightful power over other men, which is not derived from God. All human power is delegated and ministerial. This is true of parents, of magistrates, and of church officers. All men are created equal. All men have the same rights. And this means that no one has an inherent right of authority over you unless God gives it to them. And when he gives it to them, he gives it to them for a ministerial purpose, a limited purpose. To steal a a phrase from uh, Jeffrey Ventrella of the Alliance Defending Freedom, he said this, The state is a servant, not the Savior. If you want to take one thing from Romans 13, take that. The state is a servant, not the Savior. Far too often, the state claims to be the the Savior. People turn to politicians and the government and ask for salvation. Instead of crying out to God, they cry out to politicians and say, please do something, save us from this great evil. But if you haven't noticed, politicians are incredibly great at making promises and incredibly inept at solving problems. They cannot save. They are not God. And so we must not worship them or ask for salvation from them. This is not a new phenomenon. If you study Caesar again at all, you know that Caesar took two titles to himself. These two titles he took to himself was Lord and Savior. So all throughout the New Testament, when Paul is calling Jesus Lord and Savior, he's doing so in challenge of Caesar. Because Caesar is neither Lord nor is he Savior. This is one reason why the New Testament is so thoroughly political that if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either ignorant or lying to you. There's a reason why Rome persecuted the church. They saw them as a political threat. And so the state is under the authority of God because the state is God's servant. And it is his job to be a good servant that blesses the people. So I'll say it to you one more time. The state is a servant and not a savior. Next in this passage, we see that Paul really gets to the meat of the discussion. What's the purpose of government? Why does God have the government as his servant? What is his job? What is he supposed to be doing? Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The primary purpose God gives to the government is to bear the sword in punishing evildoers. That's his job. He is God's avenger and is meant to carry out God's wrath in a temporal way in this life upon evildoers. That is his primary role as a servant. And this is done against individual evildoers, murderers and thieves, and also against national evildoers. If a country comes in and tries to invade another country, it's the state's job to bear the sword and to protect its people. So the government's job is to bear the sword. And we can't say this too clearly. 
This is not the church's job. The church does not bear the sword. God has not given me a literal sword as your pastor to punish evildoers. Sometimes in church history, uh, our forefathers got this very wrong when they married the church and the state and the church, by extension of the state, wielded the sword. But God has not given that to us. Instead, in Matthew 16, God gives to the church the keys of the kingdom. The state has a sword. We have keys. And we exercise the keys to the kingdom through things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, church membership, and even church discipline. The state does not have those keys to God's kingdom. In other words, you can be born into a nation physically, but you are not physically born into the kingdom of God. The state can say you're a citizen of my nation, but you can't say that you're the citizen of God's kingdom. It's different. We have keys, they have the sword, and we must not miss that difference. But we really have to understand Paul talking about the sword and and justice and wrath and vengeance here in the context of Romans. Romans as a book. If you have your Bible, look at how chapter 12 of Romans ends. Remember that in the original text, there are no verses and there are no chapters. Those divisions are arbitrary that people have put in later that are very helpful for us to navigate the Bible, but they don't actually exist in Paul's argument. This is what we read at the end of chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome with good. Paul instructs people to not take vengeance on their own but to trust that the Lord will take vengeance on their behalf and pour out His wrath. Instead, you are commanded to do good to your enemies. But this is not a call to turn a blind eye to issues of justice. Paul moves immediately from that command into this government section. And we read that through God's servant, the state, God brings vengeance and pours out His wrath on evildoers. That's not a coincidence. Paul says, don't seek vengeance on your own because God has instituted the government to pour out his vengeance in this life by punishing evildoers. The discussion even continues in Romans 13, 8-10, the verses immediately after this. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul moves into a discussion about the law and the Ten Commandments. And interestingly enough, he doesn't mention the first five commandments about worshiping God and um, respecting your parents and keeping the Sabbath, but he does deal with the violation of individual rights. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, which leads to those other sins. And all of this is summarized as loving your neighbor as yourself. If you do those things, you will not incur the wrath of God through the government, at least if the government is doing its job. And so these commandments really are to be seen as our God-given rights. 
our God-given right to life, our God-given right to our own property. And into this context, we read about the state and its role as servant. The state is to punish the wicked. Those who break those commands. This means the state needs to know what is evil and what is good. If the state doesn't know what is evil and what is good, it cannot fulfill its role. This is where the church's job comes alongside the state to instruct the state on what is actually good and what is actually evil. The Bible is full of such examples. But in punishing evil, the state protects the good. It protects the rights of its people. The right to life, to liberty, and to property. Again, our founders put this really succinctly in the Declaration of Independence. Immediately after listing our God-given rights, they write this, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That when any, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Whether or not you agree with this belief of the Declaration of Independence shows a profound influence from the Protestant thinking on government and specifically Romans 13. Thomas Jefferson may or may not have been a born-again Christian. Probably wasn't. But you know what he did? He read born-again Christians on this topic, and it influenced what he wrote. The government's job is to secure the rights of its people. And when it doesn't do that, when it destroys those rights, it becomes illegitimate to some extent. Now we also need to stress here, when we talk about laws and government and what government should punish, that there is a distinction made in Scripture between crimes and sins. Not all sins are crimes. Me saying a mean word to you or hating you in my heart does not result in the death penalty. Jesus says, if you hate your brother, it is like killing them. But it does not get punished in the same way. Jesus says that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. But that does not then justify divorce. Divorce is for actual adultery. The death penalty is for actual murder. Both are sins, but there's a difference. Not all sins are crimes. It is sinful to hate someone, but it is not to be punished by the government. Also, and hear me closely on this, not all crimes are sins. Was it a crime for, Dan- or was a crime for Daniel to pray when Nebuchadnezzar told him not to? But it was not a sin. It was a crime when Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed. But it was not a sin. Not all crimes are sins and not all sins are crimes. And so we have to think very carefully about this when the church speaks to the state as to what is wrong and what is illegal. Because there is a difference. So with everything we've heard about Romans 13 these past two years, about the need of people to submit to their government, We have barely heard a word about the state's job to only punish evil and to not punish good. Nothing was said, largely by the church, that the state's job is to submit to God as his servant. 
We can talk all we want about how we should submit to the state, but if we leave out the state's job as a servant, then we're missing a major part of the equation. Nothing was said of politicians needing to submit to higher governing authorities in our structures like the Constitution. And so we can see that many Christian leaders didn't think through this text before they started pointing towards it. And they were being steered by those who don't get things very well. Put it another way, when abortion clinics, marijuana shops, alcohol, alcohol stores, strip clubs, and casinos were all deemed essential, but churches weren't, well, then I don't think I can come up with strong enough words to condemn any pastor who stood silent on that. If those things are essential and the church isn't, and you're okay with that, you shouldn't be a pastor. The Christian tradition is clear. A disposition of submission to the state. But that submission is limited because the state is not God, but the state is God's servant. Where the state promotes evil or oversteps its God-given authority, we do not obey. This is the intellectual heritage of the church. It was Christianity that led to the end of leaving newborn children out on the hills to be eaten by wild animals in Rome. Christians went and took those children and disobeyed Rome. It's the Christian tradition that brought about the end to temple prostitution in Rome. It was the Christian tradition that brought about the end to the gladiatorial games. It was the Christian influence that ended Roman slavery. Century later, it was the Christian influence that ended African slavery. It was the Christian nations like Great Britain that set up blockades to force African countries to stop stealing and sell their own. You don't hear that in history class. There are plenty of white people who were guilty, and there are plenty of black people who were guilty in that. But the gospel came and said, stop it. And the Christians won the day. The last thing we see in this passage the final instruction given here is to give what is owed. Verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Paul gives this instruction. Pay your taxes Give respect and honor where it is owed because there were surely some Christians there who didn't want to do that. Rome was wicked. Rome was evil. Many of its rulers were corrupt. And their individuals were not worthy of respect and honor. And yet despite that, despite the temptation to withhold their tax money, Paul says, give it to them. Give them honor. Give them respect. We can still see that today, that though our senators, some of our senators, governors, and presidents may or may not be honorable, we are still meant to respect the office, and we are still meant to show a basic level of honor. Now, of course, there are exceptions to these rules. We see those again throughout the Bible. The prophets often mocked and ridiculed the evil rulers of Israel. Uh, Jesus himself called King Herod a fox. That's not a compliment. Okay? It's not a nice term. And so there are times when speaking truthfully and opposing evil allows us to do some things that might be deemed as disrespectful. But these are exceptions and not the general disposition. Right? General disposition is this. Sometimes in the fallen world, things get so bad 
that other actions are required. And so we must note that we are only called to give the honor, to give the respect, and to give the taxes that are owed or that are rightly uh, the servants due. Caesar, for example, demanded worship in the first centuries of the church. He said, offer this incense on the altar and worship me and then, and then you'll be fine. Well, Caesar owed that. Romans 13, pastor, shouldn't he just submit? Well, no, Caesar is not owed those things. What Caesar is not owed, you do not have to give to him. That is the teaching of Scripture. When Nebuchadnezzar demanded everyone to worship a statue of him and three did not, God vindicated them by saving them from the fiery furnace. We are to give what is owed, nothing more and nothing less. So let's make some closing application here. Like, like tyranny, anarchy is objectively evil. And so therefore, you should have a basic level of thankfulness for the government that you have. Even acknowledging everything that's wrong. Even acknowledging that there are elected officials throughout this country who now refuse to punish criminals, which is their primary job, you should still be thankful that there are some criminals being punished. Because if they weren't, the whole country would descend into chaos. Some government is better than no government. We must also apply uh, these concepts of submission to our form of government. America is not an empire. There is no Caesar. Rather, we have elected representatives. And what does it mean to be an elected representative? It means that your politicians represent you. So you can complain about them all you want, but they are you. And you are them. They are us as a nation. You get what you deserve in an elected representative type of government. And the highest authority of our government, which was instituted by God, all government is instituted by God. The highest authority of our government that God has instituted. I'm not saying America is uniquely instituted as a nation, okay? But all governments are instituted by God, and the chief authority he has instituted in this country is the United States Constitution. That's pretty basic um, logic from the text. And so, you should seek to, brothers and sisters, submit to the Constitution, and you should seek to elect individuals who will joyfully know what's in the Constitution and submit to it. If you are seeking to elect individuals who openly reject the authority of the Constitution or label it as oppressive and blah, 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 needs to be torn up and burned, that is a violation of Romans 13. You must remember that the state, again, Say it again. The state is a servant and not the Savior. The state is a servant, not the Savior. Don't look for salvation from politicians. You will continually be dissatisfied. Don't look for salvation from a piece of paper like the Constitution. Look for salvation from God through Christ. The state punishes evil on God's behalf but it has no power to save anyone. So stop crying out to the state. Stop crying out to political parties for deliverance. Go to Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who died, the one who rose again, and the one who is coming back. Don't worship the state. Don't worship parties. Worship Christ. And go forward in boldness.
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word and that in Your Word we see that You have instituted government for our good. But Lord, we have a tendency to take good things and to turn them evil or to take good things and worship them in Your place. May that not be true of us. May we see the government as it is. A good servant meant to carry out your justice and wrath. And Lord, may you be with our governing officials that they would embrace that role and that they would fulfill that role to the blessing of your people, the blessing of our neighborhoods, our communities, and our nation. Lord, we ask that you would come quickly and that the nations of this world would bend the knee to your kingdom. We long for that perfect kingdom to come. And we ask that it would come soon. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.